Right then, Fictoplasm episode 97, Roadside Picnic by Arcadian Boris Dragatsky. And I have a special guest, Mr. Andy Stimson, from uh, the Breakfast in the Ruins podcast. Welcome, sir. Well, you know what? Um, it's an absolute delight to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure, yeah. You said last time we spoke, it, it's I, I invited you to talk about some of the, um, the Michael Moorcock and uh, your words were, oh, God, not him again, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, so uh, originally when I decided to do the Breakfast in the Ruins podcast, I had two options. One was to do a Moorcock-focused podcast, and one was to do a podcast based upon basically all the books that Pops gave me. Um, and I, I made a, maybe made a slight error when I decided to just focus mostly on Moorcock, because... We all want to read, and we want to read lots, and we all have our day jobs, and and reading becomes is like a precious activity, and it's a precious time, isn't it? So, to be asked to go on another Mo- um, podcast and talk about Moorcock, I thought, oh, can we do something else? <laughs> and you know, fortunately, you had a you had a backup option. Well, yeah, no, I, I had several to offer, and um, I think this was a really great choice as well because uh, I mean, it turns out that not only you know you. You've got the book, and I think you've got the edition that I have, uh, but also you've mentioned the um, the role-playing game, the Stalker mm. role-playing game, which I don't have a copy of, and even the video game, which I think we'll talk about later, mm. as well as um, the Tarkovsky, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah, um, um, the, the video game, funny enough, Shadow of Chernobyl, I lost many, many hours to it. Back in the day, never really played the sequels too much, but yeah, Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl. I probably lost tens of hours, maybe fifty or sixty hours to that many, many years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, know how some of our uh, some of the people of our age are talking about. They went into a role playing deep freeze, and mm. I went the same with video games because for about a chunk of ten years, I wasn't using a PC. Right. And so I've had all of these old games in the in the cloud somewhere, and then they sort of. I acquired a PC as a as a server mostly, yeah. but it's it's um it's got a not a great video card. It's actually a video card's actually for doing CAD. It's a Quattro or something, but right, it's okay. an old one. Yeah, but it's it's good enough for running like games that are ten years old. Yeah, um, and I haven't got round to the problem is it's in the living room, so I haven't got round to sort of playing the ones with the keyboard and mouse. Mm. God. Like the joysticks. Yeah. Well, anyway, we can talk about Shadow of Chernobyl later on. Don't get me well, started on can... it now because I'll bang on for ages. Well, let's let's do that. I mean, but first of all, we're going to talk about the book Roadside Picnic because mm. this is uh, this is the point of the podcast. Is going back to first principles and talking about the original fiction mm-hmm. and then what we learn from it. And I always think it, it's sometimes nice to talk about the things that it has influenced as well. Mm. And that's going to be the role of as well the other media section as well as sort of adjacent media there are things that i'm pretty sure have been strongly influenced by roadside picnic and also separately by stalker the tarkovsky film yeah um roadside picnic though uh the first translation i read was um antonia w Bui. i think i've pronounced that correctly and but the masterworks one is translated by elena bormashenko and I couldn't work out why, because I compared the text side by side. There are slight stylistic differences, but it's it's pretty much the same thing. Right, OK. The only reason I can think that they did that was a copyright issue, because, of course, the translation is copyrighted. Funnily enough, I'm, I've no idea whether the version I read back in the day, and I honestly can't remember whether it was the late 80s or the early 90s, um, it must have been the original translation, 
because I borrowed it off somebody. I never owned it. Somebody lent me it. Somebody said, you've got to read this, and they lent me it. It's the only Strugatsky book I've ever read, despite the fact that I love Hard to Be a God, the film, and I didn't, we'll get to that later on. But um, I've, I've, I've no idea why there was a different translation, but I, I do know it's got quite a, an unusual history in terms of um, how heavily edited it was, in terms of the content, so, but the details, no idea. I think that's in um, Boris Strugatsky's afterward, actually, some of the history of it, which, to be honest, I skimmed at best. Um, but uh, I, this Masterworks edition, by the way, it's, it, I think the other thing I want to mention, it's got a forward by Ursula Guin, mm -hmm. and it's got an afterward by Boris Strugatsky. And this was published in 2012, and I think that's when Strugatsky passed away. Right, OK. Uh, so it's uh, you know right at the end of his career, and of course, um, Arkady Strugatsky passed away in the was it the nineties, I yes, think. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so first of all, we're going to do a synopsis. Then we're going to talk about analysis of the book, and then we're going to talk about some extra media. And I think that's going to be quite an interesting and sizable segment. Mm. So the first thing I want to do for the listeners is explain the premise, and so. Uh, the premise is, 13 years ago, six zones appeared around the world, and these were generated by extraterrestrial landings. They're not really explained, but the landings are referred to collectively as The Visit. Uh, and this story is really about how the people have adapted to and exploited the weirdness of the zones. In particular, the stalkers who risk life and limb scavenging for alien tech in the zones, but also the people who live around the zones, the um, the governments who seek to control the areas, and you know, ostensibly actually to keep people out because they're dangerous, but nevertheless there is a certain amount of control, and also the organised criminals who uh, who basically generate an industry of sending stalkers into the zones to get materials and then the, the, these uh, these alien tech is then is then distributed through a black market and uh, as we get further through the novel we get a bit more detail about that yeah one of the things i really really love about this is that when you first pick this book up you think rod you know, you're used to sci-fi of all kind of different varieties and, and hard sci-fi and space opera and all these other things. And you pick up a book like Roadside Picnic and you think, what the fuck is Roadside Picnic? And why is this book called this? And it's it's such a stark thing when it's actually kind of gradually explained over the course of the book. And it, it contributes to that sense that we are completely irrelevant <laughs> to, to the 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 forces the whoever they were who actually created these zones we were completely irrelevant to them and that and there's that metaphor behind the title roadside picnic which is kind of elaborated on a little bit further into the book and I've just, it's just it's just wonderful and it and it lends itself to that brilliant um subgenre of science fiction where this reads like in some ways kind of and I'd, it could be read in some ways initially like an adventure book, um, like a, a almost a, a post-apocalyptic Wild West kind of book. Then it kind of develops into the broader ramifications of what all of this means. And what I really, really love is, is the book unpicks this as it goes along. And actually, this is kind of quite hard sci-fi with adventure trappings. 
but also as it progresses you get this um, and we'll go into this I'm sure in a little bit more detail as we talk about the four different parts of the story is you get something about the ramifications and the wider um, impact of all this on on humanity which I don't think is really picked up on in the adaptations I think the adaptations kind of miss this bit out but this for me the most interesting part of the book and the most the, the certainly rereading this for the first time in oh I don't know 30 years or 25 years or whatever it is I got a lot more out of this reading it this time as a reread which funnily enough is one of the reasons I'm enjoying doing the Breakfast in the Ruins podcast is I'm rereading books that I haven't read for a long time and I'm finding new things and I'm reading them in a different way that's one of the things I really really dig about this book yeah a good call on that the setting emerges as you read it mm. and it does it in a very skillful way and one of the things, of course, it does, it, it, it has a very tight-knit group of characters in it who appear throughout the different parts as uh, as you see different perspectives on the world from different stories. Yeah. And the, the first, the first um, one we've got is, uh, I like, Dr. Valentine Pillman, who is interviewed in the first story. Sorry, he's interviewed in the prologue. Mm. Uh, and then he only, he brief, basically then briefly appears um, in the uh, in the third story, I think. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, the, the the point of his interview is simply to a bit of exposition to say, this is how the zones appeared. Um, in fact, the Pillman radiant is a, a, something that he's named for, but apparently he didn't invent. Mm -hmm. He just got all the credit for it. Is the point of origin of the extraterrestrial probes, which must have formed these zones in six locations along the Earth. I think he, he worked it out that if they were all projectiles were fired at a at a steady frequency according to the Earth's rotation, this is where they must have emerged. Mm. He's kind of like a, a a framing character, isn't he? Um, he's he, he establishes the scene, and in some ways, he's much like oh, who's who's the character? Harewood Floyd in two thousand and one. He's like Harewood Floyd in two thousand and one, where the, the initial setup is established, and Harewood Floyd gives you all of this context that just vanishes from the plot and might be referenced once or twice for the remainder of the book but is a really important character in that that initial kind of scientific establishment of 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 the the overall setup is is completely um uh, integral to but is not really a protagonist and i think it sort of it, it supports your your um your remark that it is hard science fiction mm. i think it is very much so so then we get on to the stalker though yeah, this stalker character—he'll only be referred to as the stalker in uh, you know, the titular stalker in the Tarkovsky film. Here, our stalker is Redrick Stewart, um, and he was originally a lab tech in the International Institute of mm. Extraterrestrial Cultures, the IIEC, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, is referred to occasionally throughout the book. Um, but he was he was a lab tech by day, and then he's a stalker by night. Mm. And effectively, the uh, the first story is him going into the zone with the intention of finding well anything they can find. But there's one thing they're particularly looking for, which is empties, which are these two yeah. copper discs that are impossible to separate or bring closer together. Yeah. They're an alien container of some kind, and uh, and they also refer to it as a full a full empty, which apparently is the same thing with some blue goo suspended <laughs> between <laughs> yeah, it. That's right. But it's 
No idea what these are, but but anyway, he can get money for them, so that's why he's going there. But it's it's fantastically dangerous to do that, and he's got a a reputation of having um, some experience. He's only twenty three in the first story as well, so he is uh, you know a young and slightly less jaded character at the start. Yeah, so so Red or Redrick or Red as he's known as through the book, he's, he's essentially. The main protagonist of the book, isn't he? He's he's, he's yep. also the spine of the book. And again, something I missed probably first time round, or I just forgot, is rereading this for the first time. Actually, the arc of the book is Red's arc, and the way the initial part—it's four parts. The first part is Red in his twenties, and there's an element of he views all of this as um, a little bit. Uh, there's an element of excitement to it. There's an element of kind of youthfulness to the way that the, uh, the the stalk, for want of a better expression, that actually occurs in the first part is described. It does give you a really, really good feel for, for what it's all about. But as the book progresses, we accompany Red on really what is uh, quite a traumatic deterioration of his worldview. Yes, and and the and the book tracks that very very cleverly, not only in the way that it tracks red, but actually in the way it describes the zone and it describes the experience of the zone changes in each part according to how burnt out he gets by the experience, yeah. and it's it's brilliant, it's absolutely fantastic, yeah. and I probably completely missed that first time around. Yeah, that's very well put. Um... And I think the other thing about the zone is as the novel progresses, people uh, see it less as somewhere mysterious and just somewhere dangerous to exploit. Mm. And there is a more exploitative element of any interaction in the zone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I want to mention the community of Storks as well, because there's a couple of, of characters at the start who accompany Red they're kind of incidental, although some of them are close friends of his yes. and one of them doesn't make it. Um, there's a character called Kirill and another one called Tender, who's this novice stalker who is, I guess, the Strugatsky, The Strugatskys are using him as the, the example of what happens when people panic mm. or see the zone for the first time and how they react adversely. Um, but then the, the, the other character who's probably the most significant other stalker is Burbridge, um, who's an older stalker, and I think it's in the second story he loses his legs to the hell slime. Yeah, and he's referred to straight away in the first part, isn't he, as the vulture, because what what we find is all of these stalkers have nicknames, and uh, I think we'll probably look at some of those nicknames later on, because one of the great things about this book is it's got a sense of humour as well. And you find that when they're talking about stalkers who've been and gone, and we'll, we'll look at a short list of names as we go along. But yeah, Burbridge, or the Vulture, is is kind of a, a, a real core is is the other main core character, arguably Dick Noonan, is also gets his his moment in in the sun. But Burbridge is um, is a, a core part, and and actually you get a lot of the reveals about what is possible in the zone and what the final MacGuffin in the zone is, comes through Burbridge. Burbridge also has, he has a daughter and a son. The daughter is Dida and the son is Arthur. Mm. Arthur is, is um, well, I don't want to get ahead of the synopsis, but I, I, th- I think we sort of, Arthur is, is kind of a, uh, 
a, a bit of a, a shrinking violet and he he's effectively been pushed into uh, exploring the zone mm. on behalf of his father or, or I don't know whether it's earnestly that he wants to do this to find the final MacGuffin to help his father or if actually he's been coerced into it. Mm. Um, that happens at the end when uh, when Redrick is back in the zone now taking somebody who is inexperienced and uh, kind of feeling quite resentful about the experience. Yeah. Dinah and Arthur are really the central mysteries in this yeah. book because there's one, you could read it as a throwaway line in part two, and if you were if you were just reading this really, really quickly on the train or something and you missed that line, you miss out a really important focus of this book and certainly about that, that final part and, and, and what the the main MacGuffin, which we'll find out later, is the Golden Sphere, about the power yeah. of it. And uh, I think I actually missed it the first time I read it, but reading it again, I was like, hang on a minute, I don't remember this. And, and it's, it changes the, the context of the book to quite a significant degree when, when you think about the, the actual nature of the zone and, and the power of the anomalies within it. Which, which part are you thinking of? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which I'm thinking of. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a part in part two, and it refers to Dinah and Arthur as the children Burbridge wished up in the zone. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, and, and he kind yeah. of he reinforces that, I think, in part three, when he refers to the children who look nothing like their mothers or fathers. Yeah, and, and that there, there is, of course, um, Redrick's daughter, mm. the monkey, yeah. uh, looks nothing like her father. Mm. Uh, there's, there's the implication that the zone has actually caused mutations and that she is not actually human. Yeah. Um, Dina's kind of uh, the the character. Dina though is um, she she initially I had to sort of check that she was his daughter rather than his mistress. Mm. Sort of she she's we we first encounter her lounging around in the back garden of of Burbridge's expansive mansion yeah. and. Um, uh, uh, I think Red's gone there to give her some money from the the, the most recent haul he's made. Mm. And so I couldn't work out. So is she a daughter or is she a femme fatale? Is she both? I mean, she is a femme fatale type character. She, she is both, but for a, a kind of... I, my reading of it is she is both, but as a, a kind of perverse reason behind it. Dinah and Arthur... It says that they were wished up by Burbridge in the zone. And Burbridge is the man who has the most advanced knowledge of the Golden Sphere. How to get there, how to find it. And the Golden Sphere is essentially a wish machine. Yes. So my reading of it now, reading it again for the first time in all those years, is that Burbridge actually wished these into existence. Which is why Dinah and Arthur look nothing like him or his wife, who died many years ago. And actually, he wished them into existence via the Golden Sphere. That's one reading of it. That's one reading of it. And I think something that potentially supports that later on is there's something quite... There's a, again, there's another line which kind of feels quite throwaway. I think in part three, or maybe part four, which is probably the most horrific and and difficult part of the book, where Red says that... He slept with Dinah twice, once when he was drunk and one once when he wasn't, and he objectifies her. 
And there's two ways of reading that as well. One is Red is a prick and an unsympathetic um, protagonist. The other yeah. is he doesn't really consider to, consider it to be truly human. Yes. He, I, I think he says that both times they were unsatisfied and she, she basically had a, a less than human response yes. to it. I think I should say, when I do these, of course, we can't get away from some spoilers. Mm. There will always be some spoilers, but we try and strike a balance. But I would like to say that, that these 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 um, couple of characters, they are throwaway lines, and there are many different things to enjoy about the book. And I think that's one of the reasons it is so good, is because it has a number of different layers. Mm. You have these characters interacting, you have the arc of Redrick Shuart, and then you also have external observers uh, who are outside that criminal world. Um, they provide a different perspective, and uh, they have their own interest in the zone, which is also, it's, it's mostly also opportunistic, mm. but from a slightly different point of view. Um, I think I mean, the other lead character we've got, you mentioned Richard Noonan. He's a supplier of equipment to the IIEC. And um, initially, it's in the third story, mm. we see him... This is the other place where Valentine Pillman turns up, where he's having a quick conversation to with Noonan. And Valentine Pillman says to Noonan, I don't know what you do. You appear to be a pen pusher who's actually uh, just... You, you don't actually do anything here. You just yeah. you just manage to sponge off the UN contracts. <laughs> and uh, he... Or, or some, something like that. And I think one of the... Uh, General Lemchen possibly also uh, mentions that as well. Um, so there's that suggestion about what Richard Noonan does. And it's towards the end of the second... The second part where we first see him... Uh, and his relationship with Red. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it looks like he's asking Red to gather, you know, devices for him. And being an electronic supplier to the um, the uh, IIEC, you think that well, maybe what he's doing is legitimate, and he's actually finding a way to get these resources into the lab. Um, later on, we suspect he isn't. He's a chancer. He's he's um, got his own interest in the uh, manipulating the situation and the black market that's emerged around the zone. And it, very jealous of Burbage, I think. Burbage, as well, I think, mm. uh, is is also right to say. Yeah, I, 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 we also get Dick's uh, perspective in the third yes. part, and. The, the third part, which we'll get to, it might be my favourite part of the book uh, for, for reasons we'll talk about a little bit further along. But that's, that's when we get Dick's perspective. We found out really what Dick's about. He's, he's yeah. the classic, you know, he's the middleman. He's, he's the middle manager in this situation that everybody will look at and say, well, what, what, what do you do? <laughs> but he's, he's the Quite. linchpin around which a lot of these things swing. A couple of other characters I think I just want to, um, just to set the scene and finish things off. The other two groups of people that we see, there are a couple of people from the UN forces, and these are these are really the peacekeepers who want to keep ordinary people out of the zone for their own good, to the extent that uh, if stalkers want to go inside the zone, they actually have to dodge UN patrols yeah. and risk getting shot. Um, 
and then there is there are a couple of fences as well minor minor fences who's raspy whose name actual name is hugh and bony whose name is <laughs> phil and they don't really turn out very long but i just thought those are such brilliant names yeah. that uh yeah that that I um I did enjoy those very much. I love it. They're, they're, they're the sweaty guys in the hotel yes. when you go and do the rendezvous. They're the guys with the sweaty palms who want to see what Red's got and 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 they want to do the deal. Yeah. So as I said, the prologue starts with this interview with Doctor Pillman, which is really just explaining the premise. Then we move on to part one, and as you said, Red is young and idealistic, and uh, he takes two of the stalkers through, which is uh, killing Kirill. Thank you. Yeah. I thought Killian. No, he's from the Running Man. Yeah, K- K- um, Kirill's like his is is not quite his, his his best mate, but Kirill's his his main kind of hookup in the institute, isn't he? He seems to have a little yes. bit of respect for Kirill, but there's this yeah. thing about when you go into the zone, you need a third person. You need that third person to watch the back of the two other people who are kind of doing the do when they're in that place and they have this conversation and and they end up choosing this guy tender and there's this kind of little back and forth well he's got kids you know you know which kind of introduces an additional element about about the threat and the risk in the zone but so so this, but what's what's really interesting is compared to the later part of the book that first part of the book really kind of establishes uh, a certain picture of the zone as adventurous, and we yeah. we get those first mentions of certain things which are really picked up on in some of the to a lesser or greater degree in some of the adaptations. So you've got those anomalies, and you've already mentioned the empties, but we get a reference to other things like hell slime, which is bad. But also, I can't remember what the top. There's some kind of like eternal battery and spare cells. Spare cells. cells, yeah, and all these other little things which spare cells and and empties get a little bit more play, but there's references to all sorts of other kind of artifacts and anomalies that are in there in the zone, but also but they, the dangers. They've also get, been given these little artifacts, uh, colloquial names as well. So who knows what they were called called by the by the originators of them? Yeah. But that's what. That's what the protagonists call them, uh, and what they're called on the open market. Yeah. I think the hell slime. I think is worth mentioning, and it, it's supposedly that the way we're introduced to it is when they go past rows of old abandoned buildings that are inside the zone, which are no longer habitable, and they say that the 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 interiors glow with this sort of lambent blue mm. color, and they know that inside there that's hell slime. And you can't step in there for w- without being, uh, you know. It just, dist- I think it probably destroys bone. I mean, supposedly, mm. it, um, it it eats Burbage's leg. Bur- I'm sorry, it eats Burbage's legs um, by way of destroying the bones, but not the flesh. Yeah. So below the knee, he ends up with these just floppy appendages, yeah, floppy rubbery um, legs, and it's horrifying. Which is just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 so much worse than having just lost the legs. Yeah, it's, and there's um, also a reference, isn't there? I think in that first part, where the reason why there is the hell slime on the outskirts is because someone was attempting to transport some back, and the fucked up, and 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 it 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 got away from them or whatever. It cost the stock of the life. And then it just basically spread. So now all of these kind of um, abandoned uh, dwellings are all, you know, um, lost to hell slime. Yeah, but one of the brilliant things about hell slime as well, I think, is um, 
it's the way that it suggests the haunting of the place that was previously inhabited by mm. people. And we know it's actually an alien phenomenon that has a scientific explanation. Yeah. But the way it's described, it's like um, there was something here and now there's a, rem a sort of ghostly remnant yeah. in there. Uh, yeah, I think, um, and it's got a great name as well. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the um, word haunting. And, and as we yeah. progress through the book... One of the elements, again, that's in Roadside Picnic that isn't picked up on in any of the adaptations is that haunting element where we get references to ghosts and the dead returning, which we'll, yes. you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to a little bit further down the line. But I'd completely forgotten all of that when I read it again. Yeah, me, me too. I thought I had to go back and read and say, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> and, but but yes, it is exactly that, and that's one of the things that. Uh, well, when we go into the media section, I think there's a very important tie in there. Mm. Um, I mean, I think there's not a lot that happens in part one. They go in, they are exposed to some of the the, the dangers of the zone, yeah. and they also realise the way that um, these resourceful but you know low tech stalkers try to do things like uh, map out the areas of, of gravitational anomaly, which would, if you walked into them, they crush them, bug traps, yeah. they call them. And, and there's a later thing where it, a bug trap's caught a whole helicopter, and it's just, I think it's just brought it to earth and crushed it to bits. Yeah. Um, but they, they, so they have to navigate the area, and, and I think the stalker has different ways of, of looking around, of, mm. of feeling for these areas of disturbance, like a breeze towards a particular point mm. that wasn't there before yeah. and, and other things. It's about observation, so it's, isn't it? Because the, 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 there, are some, there are a couple of really important details that are established, and one is about, um, you know, there's the, there's, there's the trappings, like the spec suits and the nuts and bolts that they use, um, but also there's, there's little descriptions which are wonderful, which give you a really, really fantastic idea of what's going on in the zone and how unusual it is. And there's one reference to... Uh, like a, just a, a large tractor tire, but the shadow is cast in the wrong direction. Yes. And there's an, a, an area with a garage, and there are trucks, and there are a bunch of trucks which are all pristine, like they're just rolled out of, of a warehouse, of, of a, a showroom, and yet the trucks nearby are all rusted and decayed and knackered. And it's, you, you get all of these suggestions that the zone isn't just a place where, I don't know, there's weird radiation or weird anomalies or artifacts. It's reality is bent in weird ways. And, and, the, and they have these... Red's quite impressed by some of the maps that these uh, these techs from the Institute have got because yeah. you know they've actually got quite a, a well-established way of making their way through. His sense that he's impressed by them doesn't last long, of course, because... You know, Tender doesn't kind of live up to his expectations of, of what someone who was going to go into the zone should be. But it's it's all about being absolutely clear and and really navigating things, you know, to, to minimise risk. But even then, you can't minimise it entirely because the law, the laws of reality are completely warped and bent. And that's, that's something the first chapter does a really, really good um, job of establishing whilst still maintaining a kind of a lightness and an adventurousness to it all. Yeah, and I think, seeing as we seem to be jumping about from bits, we're not dealing with this sequentially so much, I think it's worth mentioning that the towards the end of the book, there is this re-emergence of the maps as well. The, the, thing, the thing that happens in the fourth part, where Red is, uh, is the oldest we see him, 
you know, only eight years older than he is in part one, but obviously much more uh, cynical, and his his life is um, has basically been a downward spiral, mm. um, and uh, as you say, has has um, mirrored the weird decay of the surroundings to the zone and the and the overall degeneration. But he has a map then, and the main things that are on the map are well. Places where other stalkers have died. <laughs> yeah, he says we right, have to yeah. rejo- we avoid these yeah. because we named this hill after this stalker because that stalker died there, yeah. and that's why we don't go there. Yeah. And it's like sort of oh yeah, I've got all these names. We avoid all of this, and uh, and you can imagine that's a lot of trial and error mm. probably uh, going through that. But it's um, yeah, and I think uh, if the first one is quite idealistic by the end of the fourth one it's much more pessimistic and that that transition of to you know how one uses the map in regards even mapping out the zone uh is an example of the steady uh, changes that we see yeah as as, um, as red's kind of positivity and outlook deteriorates about how grim this is then the descriptions of the zone deteriorate into further and further grimness and part four is pretty horrific yeah, it's 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 um, yeah, it's pretty awful. I didn't remember it being quite that bad mm. as well. Um, in part two, so just moving on between part one and part two, we've got a sort of transition into um, red uh, red forming a family. And I think this bit is quite interesting because he he starts to have different priorities as well. I mean, the the thing that happens right at the end of part one is they've made their return and he's getting drunk in the pub and getting a little bit maudlin or it's hard to say but then he runs into Guta who he's uh, uh, is his significant other she announces that she's pregnant mm. and then we move five years on and uh, and she and Red's married to Guta with their child Monkey who is not human or at least it's it's implied she's not human it's implied she's a mutation at the start later on the doctors have apparently declared her she's not actually a human but she i think she's got green eyes and and golden fur Mm. all over her body basically um otherwise she sounds like a normal kid a normal affectionate child who who you know there's a lot of love in that family actually yeah Uh, and um has he? I'm not sure. Has he already been to prison in uh, in? Before? Yeah, there is a suggestion that he's done time at this point, yeah. and there's 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 like a five year gap between part one and part two. So there's a suggestion that he's done time because he does do time again, and it's like something that he's expecting and he's prepared for. Uh, but he's he's kind of in this position where um, he knows that there's something wrong. That obviously they know that something's wrong with Monkey, but she seems like a a normal, optimistic, um, positive child. He essentially bribes the neighbours with um, putting things up in the local park, which the local superintendent kind of keeps bothering him about in order to keep the neighbours happy. But deep down, the neighbours, they don't like it. They don't like the fact that there's this family with this this zone-afflicted child in their midst. But they're kind of kept at bay by the fact that he's able to use the resources that he, he, he brings back in from from heading into the zone with the artifacts and the anomalies that he brings back in order to protect his family. So at this point, he's still about kind of looking after his family and looking after his daughter. And, and it, is, it does come across as a very kind of loving setup. And, and even after 
the, the really great thing about the difference between part one and part two is part one is like that optimistic thing, and and if this if, if this was a movie, you'd have you'd have the you know the sense of adventure, and then the it cuts to black, and then part two starts with him crouching behind a gravestone with Bearbridge, aka the Vulture, basically screaming and moaning because his legs have turned to rubber because of the hell slime, and the first couple of hours is basically him trying to get Bearbridge. Out of the um, the the protected zone around the zone and avoid the police and avoid the United Nations cops in order to get Burbridge to a doctor, and then he goes home and then we find out that actually his daughter, who we found out Guta was pregnant at the, at the end of the last part, that he's, he's got this this daughter who's who's been affected by his contact with the zone, and it's it's quite a a jarring thing for a father to to have to acknowledge that his main line of work has had a massive impact not only on him and his his his, appro- his his view of the world but actually his family his daughter and his wife and and their life moving forward it's it's really really impactful yeah i i agree with that i do have a counterpoint though that that one of the ways i one of the ways i feel about monkey is that um she's an acknowledgement that the zone has changed the community mm around the area and it's probably she's the first generation that's starting to be affected yeah um previously you know they had the it, it hadn't been around long enough to make that change so whilst I, I take your point that uh some of the some of the neighbors are probably not very happy because of what it means for their environment um i also think there's a certain amount of acceptance that well this is the way they are. My my kid looks different. Who who cares really? Whose business is it? And I I I kind of uh, I I felt that was actually quite a positive way of looking at it mm. as well. That I mean I don't there there isn't uh, a great deal of bigotry uh, presented. There's a suspicion. Yeah, I think no. in in there. Well, there's a there's um, a very pointed reference to how the neighbours view her with suspicion and view them with suspicion but the kids don't care the yes. kids that she plays with on the swings that he's built and on the toys that he's built on the edge of the pack they don't care the kids yeah. the kids accept monkey as as just another child yeah okay so so part two then he's established his family but the a lot of what's happening in part two that i really enjoyed as the just partly for the change of pace is um, you start to see the expanding world of the stalkers and the yeah. criminal underworld that they deal with, and the um, the fact that they have to dodge the UN troops and make deals. Uh, a lot of his time gravitates around the one bar that's mentioned, the Bushed, and uh, and so he's meeting several characters. I think There's, he meets Richard Noonan, yeah. and he meets Raspy and Boney. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He has the yeah. encounter with Dina, yeah. but hasn't met Arthur. Well, he's probably met Arthur, but he he doesn't have anything to do with Arthur at this point, uh, and, and ends up with uh, and um, uh, so he visits Dina Burbridge in the mansion. Yeah. And as I mentioned, she's kind of this femme fatale character. But one of the things is she's initially you wonder if she's actually fairly um, fairly clueless and just interested in. Red, mm. uh, because they've been lovers in the past, 
and then on the other hand uh, then her mood changes completely and she um, says quite openly that Burbridge is manipulating everyone mm. effectively yeah. with his promise of this golden sphere yeah. which at the moment in, in this part I think it's only just hinted at at what it actually does it is yeah it's, uh, it's, there, there are only kind of minor very mild references to to what's kind of in, in the zone in terms of that that, that ultimate MacGuffin, and th- th- there are some really really lovely parts with the uh, the interaction with Burbridge, and and as you mentioned that that broader kind of mythos around the other stalkers. There's there's a little bit where Redrick's bringing Burbridge out, and Burbridge is basically begging for his life, and Redrick gets it to the Doctor, but but as they're on his way, Burbridge says, "Do you know why old Burbridge is still alive? Do you? Bob the Gorilla's dead. The Pharaoh Banker's no more." He was a real stalker, but still he croaked, and the slug too. Norman Four Eyes, Caligan, Scabby Pete, (laughs) all of them, only I'm left. And further on, there's references to uh, the Midget's Mig. (laughs) There's there's another one, there's Midget's Mig and another one. And it sounds like like Johnny Alpha's Gang of Mutants from from Strontium Dog in 2000 AD, it's brilliant. Actually, it only gets better in part three with a list of gangs as well. It's great world building. Yeah, just to, um, to round out what happens in part two, he effectively goes on the run yeah. at the end of it um, because the UN troops are closing in um, and he he manages to escape through the cellar um, on, on the pretext of picking up the money that he angrily tried to bribe the UN guards with. Um, they said... Um, uh, they said no, we don't want your money. Pick it up. So he scrabbles around in the ground on the ground to pick up his cash, and then escapes through a trapdoor cunningly, and then yeah. uh, has to flee the UN. Yeah, from the borscht. And, and that's from the club. The borscht. From the borscht. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's the tragedy of the second one. It's like he's he. It looks like he's trying to form a family, and then uh, he has to go on the run again. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, is is around this the part where he's actually uh, he's probably apprehended. Yeah, um, we, we get we I get th- another feel for how, in some ways, quite unsympathetic Red is as a protagonist yeah. because when he's escaping, he, he describes uh, that there's this this is some some lovely stuff about the world which I think is missed out in all the adaptations. Is we've got this idea that there's a real gold rush going on in the city around the zone and you've got a combination yeah. of um, skyscrapers going up and wealth and power and advantage and um uh, pe- people being you know fill up sorry what's what's the word that what do people always describe themselves on as dragon's den on dragon's den they say i am entrepreneur yeah i'm an entrepreneur so there's all this entrepreneurship ar- around the zone but also you've got yes. mass protests of people who've come there to work for shit wages, and you've got all these protests, and there's a bit where Red's going through the crowd, and he describes them as, he says, yet another procession of some league swarmed down 7th Street, hollering and raising dust. Some 200 long-haired idiot men and short-haired idiot women. Yes. <laughs> Waving stupid signs, as filthy and tattered as himself, and even worse. And there's a bit where he, uh, where he says, 
He jumped out of the doorway, burst into the crowd and zigzagging, shoving, stepping on toes, getting the occasional fist in the face and returning the favour. <laughs> it's, br- it's absolutely brilliant. Actually reminds me of being yeah. at Reading Festival watching Rage Against the Machine 20 years ago. But yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's great world building because this starts, that, that scene is like something um, out, I don't know, out the movie like Strange Days or something like that where you've got the protagonist moving through a, a crowd of people waving placards and, and everything's crazy. And it's, it's very, very very different to the dystopian memory I had of this book where everything's grim actually it's it's almost cyberpunk you know it's it's fantastic yeah. it's absolutely fantastic and when this was written it's it's, it's brilliant yes uh, I, I I think you that's a really good point because of course the uh, the cyberpunk is you know everyone thinks about body modification and, yeah. and brand name flash but the the main point about cyberpunk that I think is the most important is uh, complete corporate control yeah. and uh, growing disparity between the, the, the corporate entities which are run more like their own governments yeah. um, versus the people who work for them and, and who are down on the street. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good point to actually talk about part three then because I think that's where we see the uh, sort of the corporate nature of yeah, everything. Yeah, absolutely. And the organisation. So why don't you tell me why you think this is your favourite part? It's What I really love about it is is the world building. So we get things from Dick Noonan's perspective. We found out about, um, what were they called, um, Bernie and and the other guy. Raspy. Raspy. And, you know, the fences. But we get a little... We get a, a number of different elements brought in in part three and it's the stuff about the world around the zone is like the gold rush so you've got money opportunity wealth tourism um you've got kind of adaptations and other variations on roadside picnic concentrate on the grim the dystopian the weird horrific but they never ever pick up on this stuff which is how the zone promotes um, wild opportunity and these people are, are pursuing this, but it's also the point where you find that the kind of the strange subturn of optimism and adventure from part one is completely eradicated because the UN have moved in, they've taken control, the corporations have taken control, all of the old stalkers are dead, and there's very few left, and we get, and then we get these additional references to. Um, uh, Red muses on the fact that ten years before just about everybody thought the same way about dead zones and decay but now there's this feeling a rush of opportunity basically the zone's not a terrible thing the zone is there to be exploited for capitalist purposes and actually the stalkers who were originally the original adventurers are now just paid they're just in the pay of corporate interest and and part three really feels to me it's like reading uh, a dystopian cyberpunk novel and it's 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 absolutely brilliant but then there's those other little things that it sprinkles in where we find that it's the western countries that are doing this but in russia the russian zone they've just thrown up a massive no-go belt around it that's a hundred miles deep <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's brilliant because it's, it's russian authors but they're basically kind of extrapolating on what the rest of the world that would do but in russia no no exploitation nothing like that 100 mile no goes on around the gold mine. It's brilliant. As you, uh, as you said, uh, it is the point at which it becomes exploited. Yeah. And it's obviously it's exploited by corporate entities and governments and criminals as well. 
Um, but one of the other things I liked about this is, well, there are two things that I thought were particularly interesting in terms of what actually the zone is and what the aliens were doing, what the significance of the visit was. And one of the things is what the IAEC are doing in terms of researching the area. So they've got this whole thing about um, uh, space cells mm. and happy ghosts, yes. you know, living corpses, which are, I think, one of these happy ghosts, the people who've either they've been animated or returned from the grave or something. It's not terribly well explained. That's when well, it's either Red's father or father-in-law who's who's one of these. Yeah, uh, we, 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 there, there are two things going on. There's a reference to happy ghosts, and there's a reference to that in part four. But we also get ref- references to the returning dead, and and the returning dead are are dead folks who just go back to their homes, and and the, the, you know they're not trying to eat people's brains or anything like that. They're just corpses that are basically reanimated, and all they want to do is go back to where they lived. And kind of and fulfil a mundane existence. And the, and there's this brilliant scene at the end where I think it's it's what is the, the um Red and Guta and the family are entertaining uh Richard Noonan. Yes. They're all having a having a drink and, and and something to eat. And there's this um returned father who's just sitting there in the living room and um I think Red hands him um hands him a drink and he just holds it with sort of no more interest than than a statue, and then suddenly on reflex he just swallows the thing, yeah. and then Monkey comes and curls up with her um what is that her undead grandfather, yeah. and uh, and they sort of look at them and you've got an, an undead grandfather and a child that looks like a well is non-human and that's what the zone does, yeah. and I thought that was just such a perfect domestic picture of what life would end up being in that sort of environment. Oh, it's it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's brilliant because Noonan goes round, and um, at that point, I think Red Red's in the room with someone who, who Guta describes as the old man, and it turns out that Red's in a side room talking to the Vulture, aka Bearbridge, about his next yeah. stalk, which we pick on a little bit later on. But Noonan seems to have a relationship with Guta, an established relationship, and at this point, Red's been in prison for years, and he's just got out of prison. So we get this suggestion that Noonan has some kind of pre-established relationship with Guta. It's not stated that it's sexual or anything like that, but that but they have they have a bond because he's been looking after her while Red's been in prison. So whilst in the third part we find out that really Noonan's um, objective now is the opposite of what it was before, he's kind of come on board with the UN and the corporations, and actually he's trying to very much control the movement of artifacts out of the zone and actually become the man, you know, to an extent. But he's been looking after Guta and Monkey to a degree. But we also find out now that Monkey isn't what she was when she was maybe prepubescent. She no longer talks. She mm. has um, got to a point where Red's come out of jail and, and Monkey has completely changed. She no longer talks. She's still capable of some level of affection. But yeah, there's that wonderful scene which is completely matter of fact where they're going, and yeah, um, dead granddad <laughs> is sitting at the table and they stick a glass of booze in front of him, and slowly, bit by bit, his hand moves towards it to the point where eventually he gets his hands on it and just just knocks it back. <laughs> and yeah, monkey comes in and just rests her head on his shirt on on his arm like affectionately. And this is now the new family unit, dead granddad. 
mutant daughter who doesn't speak anymore, wife who basically has had to deal with Red being in prison for all this time and has been kind of Noonan's been the benefactor, and it's it's uh, Red's come a long way since his kind of adventurous, optimistic, wild west approach to the zone. And this is normality now. I, I think that, that um, for role-playing games, I might be inclined to say that stalking going into the into the zone is the natural um, is the natural state of yeah. things uh, that you'd want to use as as you say as an adventure. But this weirdness of the domestic scene and the sort of slice of life stuff, I think, is every bit as interesting. And I could imagine. Uh, it's as important, sort of the stuff that happens just on the edge of the zone, yeah. uh, is is just as interesting. Absolutely, and when you think back to yeah. old games where you got fighters would get to a certain level in D and D, and they would have the stronghold and stuff like that, that never really kind of interested me at the time. But if if you were gaming this stuff, to me, this is the great stuff. This is the rich stuff about about your you know what's going on in this world. And the great thing about part three, it's not about stalking. It's about the business of stalking, and it's about the impact of stalking, and it's the most revealing part of the book in terms of the wider world, and it's all capped off by that scene at Red's apartment, and it's absolutely superb. And I think one of the other things that this scene does is it it does actually um, explain why the title of the book as well. Mm. Yes, Roadside Picnic. It does. Yeah. Um, the notion is simply that. Um, they're saying that rather than um, aliens coming here with any purpose, they basically just stopped off on Earth and left a load of rubbish behind, and that's what we're trying to make sense yeah. of. Um, you know, the, the notion that a bunch of teenagers have a roadside picnic and they leave a load of crap behind, and then all the animals who've been too afraid to come out of their burrows and everything have been looking around, and then suddenly that they've gone and they start to explore all the discarded tin cans and a, a baseball gap and a transistor radio yeah. and all the other things that they don't understand. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, that's pretty clever. But it, it's also the, the other thing, importantly, is the notion that humans are ingeniously finding ways of using these artefacts mm. um, in ways that probably the aliens never intended. Yeah. And that they're just, yeah, you know, it's human ingenuity and creativity that is is making use of something, um, turning something that might have been a power source or something into a weapon, yeah. or vice versa. So, so I should we move on to part four? Yeah, and I, th- I think part four is kind of the climax of Red's deterioration, isn't it? He. Yep. He he heads into the zone, and he's got Bearbridge's son Arthur with him, and he's bitter, he's resentful, he has really no regard for Arthur's safety beyond using him as a foil for the zone. But they're making this final pitch for the Golden Sphere, and it's the, the description of the zone is absolutely horrifying, and the actual physical torment that they're going through trying to make their way through it is completely um, different to chapter one to part one yes and it's 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 actually it's quite hard to read the the torment that they're actually subjecting themselves to and you and you're thinking why is red putting himself through this you know 
and and this this is Bear Bridges' mission. This is the Vulture's mission, and all he's done is is cast doubt and aspersions on the character of the Vulture on Bear Bridge throughout this book. He hates the Vulture completely, and I think it's probably it's, you know probably shouldn't spoil the ending entirely. But what what I find really really fascinating about the final part is that Red's been through this um, constant arc towards ultimate negativity and and being completely burnt out but it, it does have quite uh, an uplifting optimistic final moment for red where it proves that he's got one last kernel of, of humanity and actually it you find out what he's doing so the things that i, I think it is safe to say uh, about the fourth one is that that there is a resolution that involves the golden sphere yeah. and we know that this has come on the golden sphere is a chekhov's gun uh, and uh, it has to be. Uh, it isn't a MacGuffin. It is actually a a thing. Although it's not, it's not exactly what we think it mm. is as well. Which I, I think is it's um, the way it's presented is very pleasing. Yeah. Um, the thing that, um, as I noted earlier, the thing that I thought that this was good. I mean, you already said that, uh, that it's a lot more dangerous and it's a lot more unpleasant for them going through there. Uh, whether this is because this area is particularly dangerous yeah. or because he is older and less uh, less willing to ignore the uh, the downside of having to travel through the zone, I'm not sure. Um, I think you can draw one conclusion or the other. Yeah. Um, and the motivations uh, the motivations for moving into that area are. Um, not entirely certain. I think in all of these cases, the the motivations for moving into the zone and um, basically knowing that you're unlikely to, on on balance of odds, you're unlikely to come out of the zone alive, let alone with anything of value, and yet people keep doing it. So this whole question about the motivation of continuing to to go into the zone um, is something I think you you really need to bear in mind in terms of uh, if you're running this as a role playing game. Mm. Uh, motivation is important for any character. Um, I liked the description in the in part four of the. We get a bit a bit more description of the zone in terms of what other people have done before, trying to map out the area. Um, given that this is eight years between this final section and the first, we know that humans around the area have had eight years to explore the area. And as you noted, they've started to exploit it. But you also get a certain amount of human detritus mm. uh, around that the, the, they have to make their way through. So this downed helicopter, obviously, very few things fly over the zone because it's too dangerous. And this is one of the rare cases they did. And as a result, there's the corpse of a helicopter just like completely crushed yeah. that they come across, and the map is the map is basically grave sites uh, the, of, of places they know to avoid because people have died, yeah. as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, now, one of the motivations, and I, I think I'd like to talk about Stalker in a moment, mm. the film, because the film Stalker is is. Uh, it is basically that there's hardly any of this book in the film. That's right, yeah. The film Stalker is about one excursion. Yeah. And one of the things about Stalker is we don't, we don't have a clear idea about the motivations for going into the zone in the first place. Um, 
And the other thing I noted in Stalker is the way that the characters are referred to very impersonally. Mm. So we have the Stalker, the writer, and the professor. That's right, yeah. Are the three people going into the zone. Yeah. Their motivations for going in is essentially they're trying to find the same thing. And they travel through what is much of the same landscape, um, although it's presented in a slightly more sedate and uh, mysterious way yeah. on screen than it than it, it's implied in the book. Um, but that that's one of the things I thought was, was similar. But one of the things that Stalker misses out, of course, is... Um, it doesn't really talk about the exploitation. It just that there's a division between where people live and the zone in which people can go into. Yeah. And there's and then it's just about the journey. It's a single journey. Yeah. There's there's none of that um, wider context. And and essentially, uh, Stalker basically starts with part four, doesn't it? Stalker yes. the film is part four, but slight slightly changed up. So. Yes, there's no reference to Red, but the, the stalker, the titular stalker, is a guy who has a wife and a child called Monkey, which is about the only similarity. But what we find is that Monkey doesn't have golden fur or anything else. She's just she she has no she was born without legs. Yeah. And so so that's some kind of mutation from the from him going in the zone. But he's also a very different character because he comes across as incredibly anxiety ridden and traumatized. And he's taking the professor and the uh, the writer in. And what I love about this is just how Russian it is. It's its, its own thing. Yeah. It's a completely different thing. The screenplay was written by the Strugatskis, so that they had their fingerprints all over it, although how much of their screenplay survived Tarkovsky, because it was quite a troubled production by all accounts, is probably another yeah. thing. But, but in the afterword um, to Roadside Picnic, Boris does say the superb Tarkovsky movie. And... So it takes 40 minutes to get into the zone because the first 40 minutes you've got this wonderful sepia-toned, hyper-textured kind of view of grim awfulness <laughs> outside the zone. So the Stalker's house is is awful to look at. It's uh, And I think Stalker, the film, has had all sorts of influences on all sorts of different things in terms of that visual aesthetic. So Nine Inch Nails, The Closer Video, or any video by yeah. Tool, or any of those things, <laughs> they all owe everything to Stalker and how that, 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 that monochrome sepia first 40 minutes, the texture, is absolutely incredible to be behold. And every single frame you could put up on your wall as an art print. But... Basically, it's getting these guys through that exterior zone. So it's very much the case that you can think that whilst the book is about the Canadian zone, the film's very much about the Russian zone with the 100-mile-wide you know, exclusion zone around it. However, there's also a sense in the film that the stalker refer, or the writer refers to it when this occurred in our small country. So it's, it's not Russia. It's not the Soviet Union. It's it's some kind of fictional place, and that's kind of borne out by the fact that when they're travelling through the outskirts to kind of get get into the zone, they're in a Land Rover. They're not in a Russian vehicle. Yeah. The the soldiers in the zone have got Thompson submachine guns. They've not got Russian weapons. Uh-huh. So there's an effort to make it very much not Russia, but it feels Russian because basically they're going into the zone wearing practical jackets, a woolly hat. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the like damp yeah. corduroy trousers 
it's like if you can imagine a 1970s excursion by kind of you know uh, i don't know criminals or whatever into 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 the zone that's exactly what they'd look like they look like they've just basically come out of a ropey bar on the edge of an industrial town and headed for the zone which actually we do get a view of the bar don't we and it, and it, and it is pretty ropey but it's aesthetically it's just wonderful and i watched it the other morning in preparation for this my Criterion Blu-ray, and I hadn't watched it since I watched it, you know, on VHS. God knows how long. Well, VHS. That's how long ago I watched it, and I was absolutely engrossed in it from the very outset. I was I was surprised how much it captivated me, and mm. so I'm I'd not seen it before, and I got the Blu-ray of both. Um, I got Stalker and I got um, Hard to Be a God. Yeah. I think a birthday presents or something oh, from last year. Yeah. We'll um, talk about Hard to Be a but, God. Yeah, yeah. I mean the thing about the thing about this is it's a full frame yeah. uh, um, aspect ratio, so it's it's four by three instead right. of a widescreen. Yeah. And um, this may not matter much to to many people, but I I, I did I I was really interested um, looking at resurgence of full frame. Uh, cinema, uh, you know, and in fairly recent films, mm. and the way that it adds height to the image yeah. instead of instead of a, de- a a wide field of vision, you have a a tall field of vision, and uh, he makes brilliant use of that because he has. Um, there are some shots where you just see the top of the stalker's head right down the bottom of the screen, and the main thing you're looking at is the zone which he's talking about. Yeah. You can't see his face, but you can see everything in front of you. Yeah. The lighthouse is a great you, example. The, the, the Robert yeah, Agathon, yeah. the lighthouse, is absolutely amazing. All oh, right, yeah. right. And, and also very similar in that it's... it's the, I think there's an expression in films, isn't there, that the things are kind of like um, you know heightened reality, whereas these films are more like heightened texture, You know, where every, everything you look at is so rich and detailed and grimy and gritty, and that's what the lighthouse is like. It's well worth checking out. Yeah, right. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, but of um, course, what 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 the Stalker film does is it uses the Wizard of Oz approach, doesn't it? So you're in this situation yes. in the 1970s where, with a limited budget, how how do you um, get across the difference of the zone? So what we have is 40 minutes in sepia, monochrome, hyper texture, hyper textured. Uh, cinematography and then they hit the zone and it's colour, slightly washed out colour but everything's in colour and and that kind of explains yeah. the difference between the zone, but I think one thing they probably weren't able to do, you don't get things like the gravity traps and all those other things but he does, Tarkovsky does use some nice little techniques to kind of quite subtle techniques to demonstrate how dangerous the zone is and, and he makes a lot of use of the bolts so tying yeah. tying a bit of bandage to a bolt and lobbing it and, and and hoping that nothing weird happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the way it bounces and also the way that um the other thing that he ties in very well to the stalker I thought was very well realised is the way that the stalker or red in the book is so demanding of the people he's escorting yeah. and saying, You must do exactly what I say. So a lot of a lot of that relationship is all about dominance mm. and the the reluctance of the writer to obey. Yeah. Um, the you know the the writer at one point becomes petulant and he t- tries to walk That's off, right. and then he sees something, 
and he decides actually maybe there is something so I'm, I'm not, I'll start to obey I think that was um, that was very tense it's terrific and, and it's unsettling as well yeah. you, you, you get a very very brief kind of brush of something at the top of the screen that he's seen and and he gets this sense that someone shouted him and told him to stop but but nobody has and it's it's like almost like something's his own subconscious has kicked in and and made him reverse course and, and it's, yeah. it's beautiful the way it's done because at that point you're wondering what are the motivations of these characters because you've got the stalker who seems to be doing it for money You've got the writer who's doing it because he wants to experience something to kind of enhance his ability to create experiences and write about them. And you've got the professor, who at that stage his only um, motivation seems to be he wants to go somewhere and have a fair mosque and a, flat, and a sandwich. <laughs> but but as, as we get closer to The Room, which is which is the, the film standing for the Golden Sphere, and, and yes. the breakdown of, of the relationship between the characters, they all end up exposing themselves in the room as they get close to the room, helps them to expose themselves in the motivations. And it's 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 brilliant human drama. And the, the, those men are, are all kind of broken down piece by piece. It's terrific. I think I would, though, have... Um, as much as I enjoyed it, I'd have a lot harder time of just writing a game based on... Stalker, oh, yeah, compared to <laughs> compared to reading Roadside Picnic, there's yeah. not really enough. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's great there as a piece of of cinema to enjoy. Um, I don't know. I guess it does suggest some ideas to me, and and the way that you, it, it's kind of like try, trying to gamify Waiting for Godot. It's like sort of how would you do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, Stalker isn't about science fiction or the zone. It's a Tarkovsky film, so Stalker really. Is about regret and experience yeah. and all of those other things that Tarkovsky, you know, that Solaris is the same. Solaris is about regret and memories and and all of those things. And you know, eventually, Stalker takes that that kind of incredibly bold step of addressing the viewer quite directly and laying out a few things. But it has that nice little sci-fi coda at the end, which you know we won't spoil, but. I think Tarkovsky is very much a, a, an acquired taste. I, I got the Criterion Collection uh, Solaris Blu-ray a while back, and and Phil had seen the Steven Soderbergh one back in the day, and and enjoyed it. Yeah. So I said, "Well, I've got the original Russian one if you want to watch it." So we put it on, and um, she basically barred me from choosing movies <laughs> for the next few weeks. Ah. She wasn't Im- ah, she wasn't no, impressed. I... Yeah. I, I would I would have the Tarkovsky one, um, yeah, any day over uh, over the one with George Clooney. Yeah. It's George Clooney. Yeah, it was Clooney. It? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm yeah, quite fond but... of the the Soderbergh Clooney one. I think it's all right, but I, yeah, I, th- I think you have to be um, of a of a specific uh, taste to really uh, to really sit back and enjoy a Tarkovsky movie. Yeah, yeah um, it is fair. Mm. Uh, I I certainly don't think my partner would watch it with me. Yeah. Um, I, I was I tried to get her up to come down and watch it with me on Sunday morning, but she told me to fuck off. So. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> she said, "I'll stay in bed and read. Shout me when it's done." And then, of course, because it was a Tarkovsky film, <laughs> it was about half past twelve when I said, "It's done. Yes. You can come down now." <laughs> my goodness. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I I love it, and it's it's interesting that there's there's this um, modern subculture now, isn't there, of um, 
especially around places like Chernobyl, of, of people who refer to themselves as stalkers. And, and, the, and mm-hmm. they go into the, the forbidden zone around Chernobyl, um, the radiation zone, and they refer to themselves as stalkers. And I've, I've often wondered, to, when people refer to themselves as stalkers, where's the influence coming from? Is it the book? Is it the film? Actually, I've got a sneaking suspicion it's as much to do with the PC game, Stalker, as it is to do with anything else, because that's actually produced its I'm, own... I'm sure. Yeah, that's produced its own memes over the years, you know, the cheeky-breaky stuff. There are numerous Stalker memes that all originate from the game rather than rather than the book or the film. But it just shows that when something is a, is a work of art and it spreads out and it becomes an adaptation in other areas, its influence just rolls and rolls and rolls. Yeah. It has a particular format that's very easy to um, uh, to you know, mentally picture and latch onto, mm. and it has a lot of opportunities for um, different kinds of art and different kinds of emotional resonance. I think, yeah. sort of, um, pretty much as the characters we've discussed uh, feel. Um, uh, there's the the connection people the, the way people can visualize you know sort of being alone through empty spaces in a post-apocalyptic landscape yeah. or an unknown area where they're exploring it um probably that is the more enduring part uh, the the visual part that tarkovsky la- latches onto rather than the more as we say social science cyberpunky hard science yeah. uh stuff that we refer to from the book yeah absolutely I mean, speaking of game of game of content, what we normally do is, uh, what I normally do is talk of a sort of uh, analyze it as well, and I think we've analyzed it quite a bit as we've been discussing it, um, and I made some notes about the things that I think are gameable, but I think since we've got, uh, seeing as that you're here and you've got a copy of the Stalker role playing mm. game, which is the official one that was uh, uh, still licensed to the Strugatsky estate. Um, It'd be worth talking about that, um, about Stalker as a role-playing yeah. game. When I looked at this and said, well, if I was going to make a game out of this, uh, and it is a scenario which I'm familiar with, I'd, I'd have to think, you know, you'd want uh, a motive for going into the zone. You have, obviously, the traps that you need to avoid and the treasures that you might be able to find and the various effects and bits of colour around the zone area, such as what home life looks like, mm. how the zone has distorted the world that people come from, and um, other such effects like the you know the returning dead. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I think on the face of it, it's pretty much an investigation scenario where people are going into somewhere dangerous, overcoming a number of physical or possibly mental traps, and then trying to get some sort of reward out of it at the end. That's that's what the journey into the zone is. Yes. And the the other thing, the only other thing I was thinking of, that there is a community of stalkers, which is a criminal community, but otherwise you just have to think about what skills a stalker might need. And as you said earlier, it is about the ability to observe the surroundings. Mm. So I think it's not particularly difficult to... Um, turn anything like this into a role-playing game in fact i've done the same with um vandermeer's annihilation which i'll talk about a bit later mm. but was can you give a summary about how is it tackled in the in the um it's burger games burger I think, games yeah so it's, it. it's finnish um yeah and 
I, I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll get the, the bad out of the way first. It's printed in Comic Sans font, okay. which um, I, I completely acknowledge that Comic Sans works for a lot of people. But for me, it does my bonds in. But I'll get I'll get over that. So it's it's translated from Finnish, but despite that, I think it's got quite a clear voice. I think it's it's well written. It's quite evocative. I, re- I read a couple of things about it that said that the fact that it's translated from Finnish gives it kind of a stilted um, quality, which fits with the subject material. But actually, I didn't find that at all. I found it really easy to read and really clear. It's um, it does a good job of articulating on expanding on elements of, of Roadside Picnic the book and also elements of the film, but it, it it just is. Whilst I think it's good, I think it's great as a source book. The system I'll talk about in a second. It's it's just it's just missing something a little bit. But when you think about you know how how would you do this? You read the book or you watch the film. Well, obviously on its most basic level, on its most superficial level. The zone is a dungeon crawl or a hex quest or whatever we want to refer to it as. And and your adventurers, the need, their trappings, the need, their skills, the need, the perception skill. In D&D terms, they need a 10-foot pole with a mirror on the end and they need detect traps and, and all that stuff. But we can trap, we can kind of wrap it up in whatever gubbins or whatever kind of vernacular or nomenclature that you'd have for any specific game system. But again, going back to the book and what I find most interesting about the book, I would quite happily play in this world and only stalk one, once every five games. And, ev- and, and for, the, for the other four games, play out the ramifications of stalking as a business and all of the broader stuff that goes around it. That's the stuff I found really, really interesting. And I, th- I think it's, it's, it's all to do with gaming. Some people just want to do dungeon crawls. And if you just want to do dungeon crawls, then you could do dungeon crawls like this. You could turn every game into a variation ex- expedition to the Barrier Peaks, but get rid of the laser guns and just put in weird artefacts. And the role-playing game has multiple lists of artefacts with multiple lists of effects, and if you want that kind of source book that provides you with all that information and all those details and all those like sort of little you know, bits and pieces and gubbins so you don't have to make it all up yourself, it's great. But it depends what your approach to gaming is. I suppose. And and actually, I quite like it. I like the book. It was a very easy read. There's lots of good stuff in there, but it is just missing a few things. So if you want to kind of play that that gold rush element, you know, the stuff of, of the, the intrigue around the Institute, very little detail about the Institute in it. If you, It does yeah. expand on some, some, on some things, but, you know, I, th- I think I probably wouldn't play a game around this kind of setup in the way that the book sets itself up but as a, as a way of, of of actually providing source material it's very good it's very good i, I just quite like it i'm quite fond of it I'm just, uh, it's interesting you know you say that i've seen different takes on it and i've never actually read the book myself mm. um one of the things i felt that if i were going to run this kind of game i would uh start with the community that's built up around the zone mm. because the zone could really be number one the zone could be anything yeah. number two you go in and out of the zone and it's never going to be the same twice so or probably won't be the same twice okay there are maps i would expect the maps to shift and it to be unreliable um and new stuff would emerge uh so uh, i i think that you know that to a certain extent is is the way that you play the zone i agree that that isn't the most interesting thing is the community around the Mm. zone and there's there is a quote uh, on page ninety one. I think I made a note of it. Let's see if I can find it. 
After leaving the Metropole, he hailed a cab and took it to the other side of town. He didn't know the driver, a new guy, some pimply beaked kids, one of the thousands who had recently flocked to Harmont looking for hair-raising adventures, untold riches, international fame or some special religion. They came in droves but ended up as taxi drivers, waiters, construction workers and bouncers in brothels, yearning, untalented, tormented by nebulous desires, angry at the whole world, horribly disappointed and convinced that here too they'd been cheated. And uh, this kind of that's kind of the way I see the community mm. and it's very much like over the edge, the alamage of the, yeah. the um the the uh that that role playing game where um you have a lot of different people coming to the island for their own reasons and yeah. in here i think it's different people flocking around the zone for their own reasons all of them thinking that proximity to the zone is going to change their life mm. and i think talking about those characters and why they've come to the zone rather than having them why they're going into the zone so why are they in that community there and what do they encounter and what strange things around the zone happen because what would happen is you could in fact you could really you don't have to touch the zone at all because what you've got is mysterious people going into the zone and bringing weird things out and you could bring those out and those become your hooks for how the area around the zone changes and the adventures that you could have. So I think that that would be a much more, um, an equally valid way of playing and probably more interesting. Um, the other thing that it strikes me is, uh, it's a little bit like, um, well, I had this idea for a binary mode of play where the idea is you have a base and then you go into the adventure place and then you come out. And it's very much the sort of the D and D thing about, uh, you have a, a base village and then you go into the dungeon and you come back and sell your stuff. Um, except the 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 way to look at it, the, the way that some people have anal- analysed that is, well, how does that affect the local economy? Mm. And, um, you know, how do the people embed themselves in that environment and, and with that local community? Yeah. And I think you've got exactly the same thing. Yeah. But there are, there are, um, there are actual role-playing game examples of that, um, one of them is Beyond the Wall, which is a sort of very, um, it's its a traditional role-playing game, but it's designed for quick play. But the main thing is you're playing kids who've grown up in a village. So every every dungeon excursion is them exploring the area outside their village mm. and pushing the boundaries of the world that they know. But they always come back to the community that they know, and I think that's interesting. And then the other example I've got is um, uh, Jason Morningstar's Night Witches, which is a totally different idea where you are Soviet airwomen flying missions of the, as the Natex and um, do it going on bombing raids, not knowing if you'll come back. But you have a, a daytime game where you have, you're on the airbase and you're making human connections. Yeah. And then you have a nighttime game where you're doing your bombing raids, which are often fatal for at least one character. Right. And... Um, and it's that kind of that balance of the two, and Night Witches in particular, I think, shows how much value there is in the slice of life stuff that happens on the base. Yeah. Uh, and and I think it, it's exactly the same thing. It's more interesting to sort of look at the home that the stalkers come from than than what they do in the zone. Yeah, absolutely. So, There's a few approaches to it. You, you could do a King of Dungeons approach. 
yeah. where but it's you know stalkers instead or you could do something almost pendragon focused where between every game just like the book a few years pass you know and and yes. a few games down the line you're actually playing your original stalkers child who are doing it there's lots lots and lots of more interesting ways of doing it than just turning it into a science fiction dungeon crawl Time's moving on, so I'd like to talk about a couple of other bits of media as mm-hmm. well. And we, we've already talked about Stalker. Um, I wanted to just make a sort of brief mention of Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, mm. which before I'd, um, before I'd seen Stalker, uh, I still had the strong sense that Annihilation is cut from the same cloth uh, as Roadside Picnic. Yeah, absolutely. As much as it is similar to the colour out of space um in particular you've got you've got characters going into into the the area area x in annihilation not really knowing what they're going to encounter Mm. there then there's a certain thing that they don't know how the zone is going to affect them and area effect area x um in some way sort of infects the characters or changes them in some way and um that resonated with me uh, in in the book, but then I saw the film and I realised that the other thing that Tarkovsky is doing, of course, is referring to characters in very impersonal ways, just by their job description, yeah. and completely, um, you know, removing part of their identity by just referring to them as a, a role, and uh, that is very close to annihilation as well in the book. And of course, in the film. They don't do that. They actually give people proper names, right. so it's it's kind of reversed. I don't know. Are you, are you um, have you read? Another I've not read the book, but I've seen the film, and I, and I did enjoy. I enjoyed yeah. the film for what it was. I thought it was visually very book interesting. Is much yeah, but the, the book yeah. is something I should check out. The book's better. It's all, but it's also short, right? Um, and so that's a, a recommendation. It's right up my it street. Take then. you long to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I I think short fiction that actually uh, it, it packs a lot into a very few pages. Yeah. Um, and I've I ran an annihilation game using Cthulhu Dark, right, okay. um, yeah. which is which was more based around the book than the film mm. uh, because all the characters they, they there's a thing in in the book where they don't they deliberately don't refer to each other with personal information because then the zone can exploit it. Right. Okay. Okay. So this comment that you had about things being wished into existence, um, again, it's it's kind of that that is extrapolated somewhat i yeah. think in in annihilation as well it doesn't come out in the film at all right. the film actually has a different conclusion so it's it's worth reading both i'm not sure read the first one though i, I wouldn't recommend the, the sequels unless you're really into it yeah the climax of the film was probably my one disappointment with it and i've only watched it once i should probably revisit it but i did find that the climax was just a little bit hackneyed i, I, I got more out of it second time around because yeah. we watched it with our um our uh, role players movie night that we do every right. uh, every Saturday night, yeah. and that was the vote for that time, and it was it was okay. It's nicely atmospheric. Um, I think it's it's still a good film, but um, the book is so much better. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm going to track it down then, and I'm going to watch the film again as well. Okay. The other thing I wanted to talk about though was Hard to Be a God, mm. which you, which I have yet to watch. And I've only, <laughs> I'm about halfway through the book, so. Yeah. And that's Alexi German Senior, finished by Alexi German Junior yeah. after uh, the the senior actors, um, senior director's death in twenty thirteen. Yeah. Another very troubled production, um, over a very long yeah. period of time. 
But I, I often thought that my favourite depiction of medieval squalor was Jabberwocky. <laughs> I, I just love I love the town in Jabberwocky. I love Mr. Fishfinger crapping out the window and all that stuff and all the mud and crap and, and everything else. Yeah. The, 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 the flagellants wandering through the streets with the cross and the wheel. And, I thought it was absolutely superb. Well, if you like that, Hard to be a god is that times ten thousand. It's it's yeah. absolutely crazy, and every single background extra, foreground actor are so committed to their performances to make that film as convincing as possible in terms of the absolute reality of the situation and the squalor behind it. There. It's incredible. I've never. There's nothing else quite like it. And and when I mentioned earlier on that that opening part of Stalker is like kind of heightened textures. Hard to be a god is the same in that the way the cinematography works and the way the detail works, everything is so rich and filthy and detailed, and all the performances are so out there and committed that it's it's unlike anything else I've ever seen, ever. It's incredible. And I think, who was it on Twitter the other day? Jonathan Hicks, the guy behind um, uh, Those Dark Places, I think it is. Yeah, so, so we'll wake up Hicks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, he, he asked for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. He did. So I, I, I suggested... Uh, styled films. Yeah, if, if you want something that, that really captures Grimdark, nothing else touches Hard to Be a God. Yeah. There were some other good ones um, on that list, though. There was a, a Gerard Depardieu film that I'd never seen. It's in French, uh-huh. and uh, and but um, which I I, I bookmarked. Right. Um, but there was there was also a Field in England. Oh yeah, which uh, was a good which is a good yeah, choice. Very good choice. Uh, so so yeah, there's actually quite a lot of grim, dark, semi fantasy. Yeah. that's uh, if you look yeah. for it, which is quite good. On the subject, it had to be a god. I've I've never actually read the book. I've only seen the film, no. and I, I do get the impression that uh, the film is a very specific interpretation of the book. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's the case. I'm going to read the book before I uh, before I I'm going to finish the book because I've, I've got a bookmark in it somewhere. Mm. Not sure before I uh, watch the film. The book um, is my first impressions are it. It has a lot in common with Ursula Le Guin's um, *The Matter of Sergei*, mm. um, you know, part of the Hainish cycle. In that, it has um, it has scientists from an advanced world observing an ancient society and um, not being allowed to intervene. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think it's probably going to be grimmer than *A Matter of Sergei*, which is also um, not that pleasant. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's um, Matter of Sergei is great. I think it's in Birthday of the World. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, but it was. But the the remark that I thought was that in um, in Hard to Be a God, you've got human future culture observing a um, observing a medieval society, and then in uh, Roadside Picnic, we kind of got the reverse, which is mm. we have been visited by a future society, and we don't know what to make of yeah. it at all and therefore we've adapted in, in the way that would be appropriate yeah. and I'm wondering how much that's going to be reflected because of course this is supposedly one of their lighter books <laughs> it's, uh, written in 1964 yeah. um, where, um, and then uh, 
um, roadside picnic was 1972. Yeah. So um, not sure how that's going to. Well, turn cast out, off but, uh, any expectations of lightness before you watch the film. No, no, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I've been t- I've been forewarned about yeah. that. I'm looking forward. So to it's it. an interesting kind of subgenre of science fiction that the observer of of medieval world from an advanced civilization, isn't it? Because I remember reading the uh, the Christopher Stasheff novels. Um, the Warlock and Locked and King Kobold about Rod Gallowglass, who was from an advanced civilization, and ends up on kind of a medieval world, and you know, marries a woman there and has a robot horse and, and all this business. I remember loving them, but yeah, a very very different take to uh, to Hard to Be a God. But still, I did, I did quite enjoy them. And actually, now I've been reminded of them. I've got to dig. I've got to dig them out and give them a read. I think very 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 light and entertaining. Yeah. yeah. All right, Andy, I think we're coming towards a natural mm. end, and you've, you've very kindly given me two hours of your time. So, uh, pleasure. You, you got anything else? Is there any, any other points you want to make before we um, wrap up? Uh, only that I think the, the most interesting thing that I can think of that we haven't mentioned previously is that I've remembered the name of one of the other names of the stalkers, as well as uh, Midget's Mig, there was Zavka the Chicken. That's just suddenly occurred to me. Um, <laughs> and, and the other thing is uh, the, the, the PC game, kind of like a, Annihilation, kind of takes certain trappings and elements of um, Roadside Picnic and Stalker and just throws in guns. So if, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can get Shadow of Chernobyl quite cheaply and, and, and it's too... Um, sequels as well. I would I would avoid the middle one, but the first one and the last one, which I think was Call of Pripyat, are actually pretty good mm-hmm. open world survival um, gunplay games. Which I think Shadow of Chernobyl is probably one of the earliest like successful, truly successful open world games. And I lost hours and hours and hours to it. And it's it's got all the kind of the, the core. It's got quite a lot of the core things. It's got the anomalies. It's got the bolts that you throw to. You know, to make sure that you're not walking mm-hmm. into like a gravity trap or anything like that. It's got alternative stalkers. It's got other people in the zone and conflicts. It's got mutants. I remember it's the, one of the first games that ever absolutely terrified me when I was in the sewers below a factory. The first time I came across like this weird, scary, psychic mutant. Absolutely terrific game at the time. How well it would stand up now, I don't know. But a, a pretty good adaptation of, of kind of the core conceit of the zone and the stalkers. You know, um, worth checking out if uh, if you've got five minutes. All right, Andy, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been fantastic. Well, thanks for asking me on. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple of ways that you could show your support. Um, first of all, like, share, subscribe on social media. That's very much appreciated. Then, if you're on iTunes, maybe you could give me a review with five stars. That'd be appreciated. Finally, there's our Patreon, and I'm very grateful to all my Patreon supporters so far. If you become a patron, then obviously you're supporting the show, but there's a couple of extras as well. There'll be bonus episodes and bonus other written content each month, and higher-tier patrons also get to interact with me occasionally and make some suggestions for patron-nominated episodes. So why not check it out? Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrisabriskie.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.